This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. If you're new here, um, just to let you know, normally this is a little different. Normally what we do is teach through a passage of the scripture or, you know, week upon week we teach through a book of the scripture. That's what we normally do. And so we open the Bible to a passage and we just work our way through it. Uh, We are spending three weeks talking about baptism and so today, I wanted to look at a number of scriptures. So rather than have you flip all around, I just printed them out and gave you an outline which addressed some questions regarding baptism. Also, last, year, last week, rather, we did do one passage of scripture. We did Romans 6 and talking about our union with Christ and how that's represented in baptism. You can hear that message. That's really a background message for what I'm saying today. So if you haven't heard that, I'd encourage you to just go to the website and uh, download that or sign up for the podcast and it'll just get uh, delivered to you. So what we're doing is last week we did a message on Romans 6. Today is this message on the topic of baptism. Next week I want to speak on um, evangelizing children. And that'll be relevant, I hope, to all of us. If you don't have children, you still are concerned about the eternal destiny of children in our church and other children, or you may have relatives that are children. Uh, But also, in talking about how to communicate the gospel to someone, that's relevant regardless of your age. So that's what we'll be talking about next Sunday. And then the next Sunday night, um, I'll do a teaching with some Q&A here at 7 o'clock on August the 1st on the theme of uh, baptism and children uh, for parents. That's not for children. Uh, That's for you to equip you in helping your own children uh, with that topic. Let's pray, and then we will dive in here. God, we thank you that you are a God who saves. We have no other hope but you. We thank you for grace today. We thank you for your work on the cross and in the resurrection for us. You are our hope, Lord Jesus, and we declare that today. We pray that you would teach us today. I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would open up these scriptures to us as we look at them today, and that you would address our hearts and speak to us very clearly. I pray that you would feed us, um, but I pray that you would do more than just give us information today, Lord. I pray that you would turn our hearts with faith towards you, and, uh, and with expectation of what it is to walk in new life before you. And I pray that you would give us as a church a, a great expectation about this topic of baptism and to see many baptized. So we thank you for this and pray that you would just speak clearly now. Give me a clear mind and a full heart and give us all listening ears to be hearers and doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, uh, I want to talk about the meaning and the practice of baptism and do that by looking at some kind of answering some questions uh, that can be asked about this subject. And I think it's important that we start with the meaning. In in any subject you're studying, it's most important to know, you know, what is the meaning of that subject before you move on to talk about application regarding that subject. And that is certainly true in baptism, because I think if we see from the scripture 
the meaning of baptism, that will go a long way to answering some of our questions about the practice of baptism. When we see what it means in the Scripture, then questions like who should be baptized and how should they be baptized and those kinds of things, I think, become much, much clearer rather than if we start with the question who should be baptized. We should really start with the question with what is baptism? And that's where I want to start today. What is the meaning of baptism? This is the first point on your outline. And to start with, I just want to talk about what does the term mean? So when we say what is baptism, what does is what is the verb to baptize mean? Then we're, we're safest just by starting with what does that very word mean in the Scripture? Well, the Greek word that is translated, or, or we could say is transliterated into our New Testament is uh, a word which means to immerse, to plunge, to dip. That's what the word means. When the New Testament is translated, they just take the Greek word uh, baptizo and just make it baptize. They just uh, transliterate. They take the, 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 the Greek letters and just translate them into the English and create this word to baptize. But the word originally meant to immerse or to plunge or to dip. And it's, it's important to note that that is... What I'm saying right here about the term and what it means, that's an agreed, that's agreed upon generally, uh, regardless of how one views someone is to be baptized. So even those Christians who would present a case for sprinkling or pouring in baptism, they, generally speaking, from what I've read of scholars, would agree that the word does mean literally uh, immerse. And, and there's secular Greek outside of the New Testament where we see this. So, for instance, the word uh, baptized was used to describe a sinking ship, uh, a ship that submerges. That, that word was used to describe that. Or um, to dye something, like if a piece of cloth was plunged into a dye until the cloth was covered and then removed so that it changed color. That, that submerging or emerging to dye the cloth was uh, the same word to baptize, to plunge down into the dye or to place it down in there. So that's literally what the word means. So when you see that in Scripture, it's not inappropriate to have that thought. In other words, when Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them, it's not wrong to read that, go into all the world, uh, you know, to, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Or at Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, where Peter preaches the gospel, he says to the people, repent and be immersed. That's that's what he's literally saying there. So we understand a little bit about the word. That doesn't tell us everything. But we understand a little bit about what baptism is if we just study the word itself. Secondly, we can look at biblical narrative. That is, we can look at stories or accounts where someone is baptized. And when we do, we see that the meaning of this word, immerse, uh, is consistent with the examples of baptism we see in the New Testament. So, for instance, we could look at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1. This is in your outline. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So, it says that the first part, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee was immersed by John in the Jordan. And you notice that the language that used there, the preposition, he was baptized 
in the Jordan. He's not baptized by the Jordan. He's not baptized near the Jordan. He's not baptized beside the Jordan, but he's baptized in the Jordan. And the next sentence says, and when he came up out of the water. So he's baptized in and or immersed or plunged or dipped in. And then he comes up out of when he came up out of. So that description of Jesus's baptism um, would be consistent with the meaning of this word. Or look at Acts chapter 8 in a situation there where we have Philip who is baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. And this is what it says. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. So, similar language. He went down into the water. He came up out of the water, the eunuch and Philip, both. They go down into and come up out of. So, the meaning of the word... Uh, is to immerse the narrative, those two examples that describe someone being baptized is consistent with them being um, whatever it means, that they were placed in water and came up out of water. Another way to understand the biblical meaning of baptism would be to look at the biblical teaching where an actual baptism is not described like we just read, but rather the significance of baptism is talked about. So how do we understand the meaning of baptism by understanding its significance? That is, what does it signify? What is it a sign of? That's what significance means. It's something that's signified. So what is baptism a sign of? Now, I spent 50 minutes last week or so talking about this. So really, you could download that message, and that would be the way to understand a very detailed description of what I'm going to say in just a few minutes here. But centrally, baptism signifies a Christian's union with Jesus Christ. That's what's primarily in view with baptism, that a believer is in union with Jesus Christ, and in particular, in union with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Look in your outline there at Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So baptism visually expresses... So it's a visual testimony to all of us of a believer's union with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As a believer is immersed in water, that represents Jesus' death and burial, and as he comes up out of the water, identifying with his resurrection. That, that same idea, if you're taking notes, is also found in Galatians 3, verse 27. Galatians 3.27, we talked about that last week. Also, Colossians 2.12, which we talked about last week as well. So, union with Christ is, we might say, the controlling idea of baptism. And when we answer that question, what 
you know, what's the meaning of baptism in those passages? It, it kind of, a- again, answers the question, who should be baptized and how should they be baptized? Um, those who are in union with Christ should be baptized in a way that reflects their identification with his death, burial, and his resurrection through immersion in water. Now, baptism represents other things as well in the New Testament. While I'm saying this is the central idea, it's not the only idea in the New Testament. There's some other areas as well. However, the other areas don't make as much sense. They're really not meaningful if we don't have this idea that a believer is connected to Jesus Christ and believes in him and is in union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Here's, here's a couple of other ideas that flow from that. One is that baptism signifies the forgiveness of sins. Number two in your outline. Baptism signifies the forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, there are certain purification rituals where water is used to represent um, cleansing someone, uh, not physically, but spiritually cleansing them from sin. And perhaps the same idea is present to some degree in baptism. That baptism signifies that a person has been cleansed from their sins. Look at these scriptures. Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. There's a connection there. He's preaching Jesus Christ. This is, he has just spoken to them and expressed to them that Jesus is the Son of God who has come, that they have killed Jesus, that they are guilty for His crucifixion, and that ultimately their sins um, are responsible for, their sin is responsible for Jesus' death. And so the people are cut to the heart by that and they say what must we do and he says repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins so they are to turn and ultimately we see they receive his word and they're baptized it symbolizes they have had their sins washed away by believing in christ acts 22 16 this is the story of paul's conversion he was saul and Jesus appeared to him. He saw a great light. He was blinded. And then a guy named Ananias came to him and he says this, Now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So Paul talks about the fact that Jesus had become real to him through this vision, this unusual thing that happened in the book of Acts. And he realized he was persecuting the Son of God. And so he, he halted and, and he believes. And then Ananias comes to him and says, you know, Saul, you should rise up, that you should call on Jesus' name. It's a way of expressing belief, asking forgiveness, trust, identifying with Jesus. You should be baptized. You should call upon His name and have your sins washed away. So baptism signifies the forgiveness of sins. Someone is not forgiven of sins in the water. That's not what we're communicating. Scripture throughout makes it clear that we are saved by grace and we receive Christ through faith. It's not what we do, be it our good works or even be it baptism. God doesn't save us in baptism. God saves us through Jesus Christ as we receive Him in His grace by faith. That's how God saves us. But, but baptism represents what's already happened in our hearts, that we're forgiven of our sins. And so it's a sign. This person's been washed from their sins. 
That is glorious. When we see someone placed in the water and come up out of the water, they're identifying with Christ, and we're recognizing this person's a forgiven sinner. Good news. Third, baptism signifies inclusion in the new covenant. (coughs) Inclusion in the new covenant. Now, in the Bible, there's an old covenant and a new covenant. The old covenant is God's, uh, God's legal agreement, God's relationship, God's uh, promises to Israel. That's called his covenant. And when you were born into the old covenant, you were born into a family in Israel. Um, participation in that covenant came by being born into a Hebrew family. But participation in the new covenant after Jesus Christ comes by spiritual birth. So the way you are involved in the new covenant is you are born again. You're converted. You have faith in Jesus Christ and receive new life in him. It's not by physical birth. You're not a Christian because your parents are Christians. That doesn't make you a Christian. You are a Christian because you personally believe in Jesus Christ. So entering the new covenant is by spiritual birth. Entering the old covenant is by physical birth. And both of the covenants have a sign of participation in the covenant. So in the new, under the old covenant, a male was circumcised, and that represented um, that he was identifying with God and the people of Israel under the old covenant. He's given a sign, and he's given a sign that is connected with reproduction. That's about as explicit as I'm going to be, but he receives a sign that's connected uh, to um, his ability to reproduce, and so that sign shows that the old covenant is by physical birth. The new covenant by spiritual birth, and the sign that one is in the new covenant is baptism. Baptism. And so in Colossians 2, um, Paul talks about the fact that there are these two different Um, expressions of initiation into the covenant. And he compares them. Look what it says in your outline. In him also you, he's talking to Christians, in Christ, that's union with Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So he's saying something different. If you're born as a Christian, then you become a Christian. You're born again, born anew in the Spirit. If that happens to you as a believer, you experience a circumcision, but it's not physical. It's spiritual. It's not made by hands with a circumcision without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, Galatians 5 talks about that we are born under the control of the flesh. We're born, that's talking about our sin nature. We are born with a sin nature. And so when a person becomes a Christian, there is a cutting away of their old life. There is a death to the flesh. There is a cutting away of the old life. Under the old covenant, there is a cutting away that's literal. In the new covenant, there's a cutting away of one's heart of the old life, so there is new life. So there's a contrast between physical circumcision and spiritual circumcision. In the new covenant, there is a circumcision of the heart, and that is represented how? When someone is new and their old life is cut away, what's the sign of that? What's the sign of that spiritual circumcision? Is it physical circumcision? No. He says it is baptism. Look at the rest of the verse. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith 
in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So baptism is the outward sign that a circumcision of the heart has taken place. So the Old Covenant, the sign that you're part of the Old Covenant, physical circumcision. The New Covenant, spiritual circumcision, a change of heart. How's that signified? That's signified by baptism where you are buried with Christ and where you are raised with Christ through faith. In the New Covenant, faith is required. Under the Old Covenant, you're born into the Covenant simply by your physical birth. So there's a, there's a distinction. A distinction that he's making there. So, what does baptism mean? Primarily, union with Jesus Christ. That we believe in Him and we're united in His death, burial, and resurrection. That means we're forgiven of our sins. And that means we are part of the people of God under His new covenant. Now, having said all that, who should be baptized? Well, only those who are in union with Jesus Christ should be baptized. That is, baptism is reserved, I'm in the outline here now, for those who have been converted by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The New Testament clearly commands and anticipates the baptism of professing believers. The New Testament does not anticipate anywhere the baptism of unbelievers. Baptism is connected to faith. Baptism is the result of one's conversion and their being faith to show they're in the new covenant because they have a new heart. They have a new life. They've been born anew. And this physical baptism represents the new life that's in them. They've died to their old way of life and they've been raised, literally, emerging from the water. They've been raised with Jesus Christ into new life. Let's look at some verses that show that baptism is connected with faith. First of all, the idea of baptism is first... Uh, commanded by Jesus Christ in Matthew 28. Look what he says in your outline there, please. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's speaking to his disciples. Go, you go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So baptism here is tied to what? Physical birth? No. Baptism is tied to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower, a believer of Jesus Christ. And so here he institutes the command to baptize with the command to make disciples. They're going to preach the gospel. They're told to go to all people, all nations, every tribe, every tongue, Wonderful. It's not just the Jewish people. Now the, the covenant is, is being, the new covenant is coming, and it's all people. No matter what their race, all Gentiles, men and women, young and old, go preach the gospel to them and make disciples. What's a disciple? A disciple is a follower, a learner, someone who is submitted to the, 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 the lordship of Jesus Christ, the master. It's a believer. Go and make believers. Preach the gospel to them and lead them to the place where they are followers of Christ, and baptize them. These followers of Christ, these disciples, are to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them how to live for me. So that's conversion and then growth in Jesus Christ, and I'll be with you always, is what Jesus says. So Jesus commands his followers to go out and preach the gospel and baptize those who are disciples, that is, followers or believers in Jesus Christ. Now, Peter is there with him. Peter is a disciple, and Peter obeys this. 
Because right after this, in the book of Acts, Peter does just what Jesus told him to do. Now, if, if this is a little confusing. If you're new to the Bible and you don't know some of the things I'm talking about here, like the book of Acts and the day of Pentecost, which I was about to talk about, that is okay. We don't expect that you would know all of these kind of contexts. I'm moving fast. The main thing is that you know these are Bible verses that are expressing truth uh, that God calls us to. So what happens is Jesus gives that commandment that I just read. You guys go out and preach the gospel, make disciples. Then Jesus, shortly after, ascends up into heaven to be, uh, Jesus is fully God, fully man. He ascends up into heaven to be with his Father. Then what happens is he pours out the Holy Spirit. That is the presence of God. And the presence of God fills his, these small band of followers that he has, and then they stand up, and Peter preaches to everybody that's gathered. A large group of Jewish people are gathered. Peter preaches to everybody about Jesus, and he does just what Jesus told them to do. I referred to this a, a minute ago, that he announces to the people that they've killed Jesus, that he is God, and he is the Savior, and they've rejected him. And when the people hear this, it says they are cut to the heart. I think that's interesting language given what we read in Colossians about the spiritual circumcision of the heart. They're cut to the heart. What does that mean? They are convicted. They are aware. We have sinned. We need a Savior. They see their need for Jesus. And they say, what do we do? What should we do? And this is what Peter said to them. This is in your outline, Acts 2. Peter said, repent and be baptized Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So he says, turn to the Lord and believe, turn from your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And what I'm telling you that God will forgive your sins ultimately is what he's talking about here. What I'm telling you, that's for every one of me listening. And this call to repent, that is turn from your sin and believe, that's for your children. And that's not only for your children, that's for those who are afar off. That's people like you and me. We're the far off ones uh, in time, but also in culture. That's for the Gentiles. And look at the next verse it says in your outline there. Two verses later it says, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So who is baptized? Well, he said, believe. He actually said, repent. He said, repent and be baptized. And everyone who received that, who accepted what he was saying, who believed in what he said about Jesus Christ, everyone who received that, some didn't receive it. I'm sure some hearing didn't have anything to do with it. But some people received that. The listeners, their children, they believed, they received. Those are far off, we're going to see in a minute. And they get baptized. So baptism is tied to faith. Jesus said it's for disciples. Peter says, turn from your sin and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they receive that word and they're baptized. They have faith is the simple point. Acts 8. This is Philip in your outline preaching to the Samaritans. So it's the gospel spreading out here. When they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Both men and women. So these men, these women that hear the gospel, they believe, they hear the good news, they believe, and they are baptized after they believe this message. Acts 10. This is Peter preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. So he's preaching to them, and they 
receive the message as well. The Holy Spirit falls on them, and it's really powerful, this powerful scene. And this is what is said, Acts 10. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? It's obvious they've believed. There's this kind of miraculous thing going on. They're speaking in tongues. They're, they're Christians. This, this powerful scene. And he says, these people need to be baptized. How can anyone withhold water? They're Gentiles. They're not Jews, but look, they believe. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So they believe and are baptized. So here's this expansion as we go through the book of Acts. The gospel goes out. People believe. And what do they do after they believe? They respond by being baptized. Now, I want to read one passage here in Acts 16 because there are some passages in the Bible where whole households are baptized. And uh, I want to look at this one in particular uh, where the gospel comes and a whole family, um, or it could be a household could include more than a family. A household could include an extended family. A household could include servants, which they would have had at this time. Um, So whoever lived in that household... um, Uh, could be baptized. So this is what happens here in Acts 16. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is a Philippian jailer. Paul has been in jail. An earthquake has come. Paul is now free. The jailer thinks he's doomed because the prisoners are free. And he comes to Paul and says, Wow, what, what must I do to be saved? They said, Paul says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household... And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Okay, so here is a household being baptized. But there's more than a household baptism here. There's also household preaching. Look at the second line. I don't have verse numbers in here, but the second line, they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a household command to believe in Jesus, and you will be saved. There's a promise to the whole household that if you believe, then you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So it's not a household baptism of people that never heard the gospel, It's a household baptism of those who have heard and who've been commanded to believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, then that same hour of the night, they wash their wounds, and then he's baptized, he and all his family. So the whole family is baptized. That's wonderful. Then it says in the last line of that section, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So, if we kind of look at the whole situation here, there's household preaching, there's household call to believe, there's household baptism, and then his whole household, his entire household, whoever lives in this household, uh, is rejoicing over what has happened. Now, some would say, well, there were infants in that household that were baptized. Well, the text doesn't tell us that, obviously. What the text does tell us is that the whole household is preached to and told to believe. So whoever is in this household can be addressed by the Scripture and must be able to respond because the last verse says the entire household rejoiced. The only people that are going to be rejoicing that everybody got saved are those who could comprehend what was going on. So this passage 
it's fair to say, certainly implies faith. There's no sense here that people without faith are baptized. There's several instances of household baptisms, I think three, in the book of Acts. And there's only one where, if faith is not outright stated, it's least implied as it is here. And that's in the household of Lydia, and it just doesn't tell us. In Acts 16, it just said, Lydia, she hears the gospel and her household is baptized. That's all it tells us. It doesn't tell us the age there's, there's no sense that the scripture says, and they baptized unbelieving children. There's no sense that it says there were servants in the household, and they baptized those unbelieving servants who were not Christians. It just doesn't say that. It just says their household is baptized. So it really doesn't tell us anything about the nature of those who were baptized. We can only ima- imagine. If you would like to do some further study on what I'm talking about right here, um, the best place that's to read briefly on this would be Wayne Grudem and his uh, systematic theology. He explains this well. I, th- I think we saw that at the Resource uh, Center. You can get that there. So in each of these cases where Jesus talks about disciples, the day of Pentecost, Peter says, repent, be baptized. The, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, and at least this household baptism, there is faith that is tied to baptism. In every case, The greatness of God, the work of the gospel is announced, and when people respond, the initial sign of their inclusion with believers is that they are baptized. Baptism is an initiatory sign that signifies an individual has come into union with Jesus Christ by their belief. So we're asking, you know, who should be baptized? Those who have heard the gospel who have believed, who have become disciples, who have responded with faith in Jesus Christ. And communion the same way as for those who have expressed faith in Jesus Christ. So communion is a union with, a communing with Jesus Christ, identifying with him as our Savior, his body and his blood. That happens in an ongoing way for the Christian. Baptism is an initial identification that one has become a Christian. Okay, what is the purpose of baptism? Um, if that's the meaning, what is the purpose? In other words, why, why be baptized? What is communicated by a baptism? Um, there's something objective and something subjective that's being communicated in a baptism. There's something objective that means outside of us that is being pointed to. Think of it this way. Baptism preaches a message through through its uh when a baptism is conducted it is preaching a message communion preaches a message communion preaches that jesus christ's body has been broken and his blood has been shed for the forgiveness of sins but every time you receive communion that is a that is a visual sermon And baptism communicates a visual sermon as well. What baptism communicates in the first place is uh, 1 Corinthians 15, which is in your outline down under point one there where it says baptism's objective sign. 1 Corinthians uh, 15 says this, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Baptism powerfully demonstrates that truth. As someone goes under the water, they are in the first place identifying with the fact that Jesus died. And when they come up out of the water, they are in the first place announcing Jesus is resurrected. That happened outside of us. 
But not only are those facts true that Jesus died, that has now been applied to us personally. So baptism preaches the message of the gospel, but it says something more than that. It also says, I have been changed by the gospel. It says Jesus died and was buried and was resurrected. That's objective. It also says, I believe in that and I have new life. Christ has saved me and given me new life. I'm a new person. My sins are forgiven. That's subjective. That's internal. That's me. Both are being communicated in baptism. It's a powerful thing for someone to identify with what Jesus Christ has done for them and to do so publicly. I mean, when someone is baptized, Jesus had baptized them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The, in the name means the, under the authority of Jesus Christ. They're identifying and saying, I'm baptized in his name. I'm taking the name of God as, as I'm announcing myself as a follower of Jesus Christ. He is my Lord. I'm taking the name Christian, if you will. A, a little Christ, a Christ follower, a believer in Jesus Christ. That's who I am. So we're making that public statement about the, not only the truth of the gospel, but that it has meaning for me personally. We are making a, a statement and coming out into the open and we're crossing the line of public confession. We're crossing the line and we're coming out into the open and saying that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is the way the Bible prescribes that we communicate one way, one way, that we communicate the old person's dead, the new person's alive. That we communicate, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. If you have a Christian bumper sticker on your car, feel free. But just know, that's not the primary indicator that the Bible says that you have become a Christian. To get a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. You are free to do that, but just realize that the way the Bible says this is the initial way that signifies you are a follower of Jesus Christ and a believer is that you're baptized publicly so that other people could see that. And in previous cultures, like in the culture of the Scripture, and in many places in the world today, making a public profession of faith like that is a dangerous thing. I mean, there, some of these individuals who were coming out and saying, I believe with, uh, in Jesus, the religion they were a part of had condemned Jesus as a false messiah. So to identify with him meant you were opening yourself to persecution. You were opening yourself to getting kicked out of the temple. You were opening yourself to family rejection. And you may have been opening yourself to death. Not because you prayed privately, but because you publicly were immersed and came out of the water and identified yourself with Jesus Christ. You're making a confession of your faith. Now here, um, folks in the room will applaud, cheer, this is great. And when you go out in the parking lot, there won't be someone armed there, you know, ready to arrest you. We live in, a, in an environment where, that is supportive, uh, generally speaking, um, of becoming a Christian. However... This, as well for us, can be a public confession of our faith. When someone is baptized, it is a very good idea for them to invite unbelieving family members, unbelieving neighbors, non-Christian co-workers to come and, and see the preaching of the gospel by what that represents, to hear the preaching of the gospel, and also to see that their friend is proclaiming Christ publicly. That is a powerful statement that brings that person into the light, out into the open about their faith. 
Um, that is one reason I'm excited that we can do this here and be able to invite uh, folks to that so that people can announce their faith in Jesus Christ. That can make a real difference. Sometimes people ask, well, what happens actually in baptism? Does anything happen? Well, I've seen a number of things that happen in people's life. But one is this. When you publicly acknowledge your faith before others, often there, especially if you had some unbelievers invited, there is a, a boldness uh, and there is a, a statement, a, a heart to identify with Christ publicly. There is an obedience to Jesus Christ that brings with it his blessing. When we make a public profession, when we identify with him, there, that's a blessed approach to life rather than not making that statement. God honors that. Okay, number four. When should a person be baptized? When should a person be baptized? Number four. On August 8th. That's when a person should be baptized. No. uh, A person should be baptized once he or she communicates a believable profession of faith. And so what that means is once a person has believed in Christ, and they can clearly understand the message of the gospel and clearly understand their response to the gospel and say, I'm making that response, I've made that response, maybe a week ago, maybe 10 years ago when they haven't been baptized, but they can say, I I understand, I'm a follower of Christ, I understand that I've turned from my sin, I've turned to Him, I believe in Him as my Savior, I believe He died in my place, and I'm coming under His name. I want to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. I'm coming under His Lordship. So they're able to count the cost of that to some degree. They're aware of their sin. They're aware that they're turning from their sin. There's a conviction of sin. Like on the day of Pentecost, they were cut to the heart and said, what must we do to be right with God? So someone who's experienced that awareness of their sin and awareness of the Savior, and they've turned believingly to Him. So that's when someone can express that and they say they've done that, then uh, that's a demonstration that they've been regenerated. That is, they have new life, and there's no need to delay their baptism. The baptisms in the New Testament tend to occur soon after conversion is what typically happens there. Now, I do want to say this. Special care and wisdom need to be given to the profession of a child who has grown up in a believing environment. And so in two weeks on Sunday night, I want to talk about that because we can look at the New Testament and see, you know, someone who is a Jew that is identifying with Jesus Christ and in essence renouncing all of their history and subjecting themselves to potential persecution, there's a pretty good chance that person who's heard this new news and is making that kind of a radical life sacrifice, pretty good chance that's a credible profession of faith, that they really understand and that they really mean it. They're mature, they're adult in their thinking, they get that. A child who has always been in a believing environment and has never lived outside of a believing environment in their family and in their church, that child can absolutely be saved at a young age, but it's a little more difficult to understand are they mimicking what they've heard or is there a life change like there is in that adult who's saying, I really do believe in Jesus Christ. He really has given me new life. So we want to be careful and we want to be thoughtful in that. And we want to encourage children to believe for sure. Uh, There's a book at the Resource Center called Your Child's Profession of Faith. It's a helpful tool that will help you think through this, your child's profession of faith. And then I'll be referring to that and some other things when we gather on Sunday night for any parent who'd like to come talk about that. 
Okay, who should conduct baptisms? This will be short. I have no verse on this uh, because the Bible doesn't directly answer who should baptize people. The Bible doesn't say these are the only people that can baptize. But if we look at the book of Acts, we do see this. We do see generally speaking, or maybe not generally, maybe in every case, I'd have to think that through, but that, that leaders in the church are involved, are involved with baptisms in each case. So in our church, since pastors are charged with the responsibility to see that we have a believing membership, a regenerate membership, in other words, members of the church are to be believers, and that's ultimately a pastor's responsibility to, ultimately you can't say 100%, but to interview someone and see if they have a believable profession of faith. That we're called to do that and responsible to do that. So the church is made up of Christians. Uh, in the same way, we are involved in interviewing people uh, who have come to faith and involved in baptizing them as well. It's a statement to them. It's a statement to the church that someone has asked, is this person a Christian before they're being uh, baptized? Now, that's not to say that others can't participate as well in both interviewing and baptizing. I've baptized people with uh, maybe a young person with their dad on one side and me on the other, and we baptize the, the person, that, uh, the uh, young person together. Or uh, just talking to somebody after the first service who said that they've led someone to the Lord and uh, or have discipled someone, and, and uh, that person's asked if they could be involved in their baptism. So we talked about the two of us being involved in that person's baptism because he led that person to Christ. So maybe it's someone you led to the Lord, or maybe it's your child, or something like that. So others can be involved, but we do have leaders in the church involved in this process. Now, it's very important that what I'm not, that you hear, uh, that you don't mishear what I'm saying here. I'm not saying this, that if a leader is not involved in a believer's baptism, it's not a valid baptism. I'm not saying that because the scripture doesn't say it has to be this person that baptizes. So if you, after you became a Christian, were baptized uh, by someone who wasn't a pastor, not an elder, not a deacon, whatever, uh, but you were a believer and they baptized you, then your baptism is is credible. You're okay um, before the Lord. That is a real baptism. But in our church, uh, we are wanting to do it in our worship service, and so we will be involved in, at, uh, at some level in those. How about this question? I was asked this last week. Should a person ever be re-baptized? Well, Scripture never teaches the need for more than one baptism. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Ephesians 4. Notice the order, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. If, however, a person has been baptized as an unbeliever, and I want to say this as sensitively as I can say this, uh, and as not self-righteously and non-arrogantly, I hope I can communicate this humbly and with care, but if a person has been baptized as an unbeliever, then that person has not really experienced a meaningful baptism in the sense of the Scripture's description of baptism. That is, they haven't, when I say not meaningful, it may have been meaningful to your parents if you're baptized as an infant. It may have been meaningful to the congregation. But it wasn't meaningful to you at that moment, for you were not in union with Jesus Christ. You had not died and been buried and been raised with Jesus Christ. You had not had one sin forgiven until you came to the place that you believed in Jesus Christ. So, um, 
someone who has, or, or you could be older than that. Maybe you were baptized at age eight as an unbeliever, and you came to be a believer later. Then I would say the same thing. If you were baptized at age 40 and you were an unbeliever, I would say the same thing. 40 years old, unbeliever, baptized, then I would say that is not a meaningful baptism because you were not in union with Jesus Christ. Your sins had not been forgiven. So, when I'm saying there's no need to be rebaptized, there's just one baptism, what I'm saying is what's on the page here. The baptism of an unbeliever cannot express union with Christ, cannot express forgiveness of sins. A person should be baptized only once following his or her conversion. So a point in time someone's converted, then after that, one baptism. One baptism, and then there's no need to be baptized. Someone said, well, you know, what happened with me? I was baptized, then I rededicated my life, so I thought I should be baptized again. No, you don't need, the Bible doesn't say every time, it's not part of your sanctification, that every time you make a leap in growth, or every time you repent from something, you get rebaptized. That's not what the scripture teaches. It, it symbolizes and signifies once that you died and were buried and were raised with Jesus Christ. So, if you have never been baptized and you are a believer today, we'd recommend that you get baptized. If you were baptized as an unbeliever, then we would say that baptism, whether it was sprinkling, pouring, immersion, or an alternative form that I'm unaware of, whatever it was at that time, if you were not a believer then we would say you should be baptized as one who is immersed into Jesus Christ and recognizing what he has done for you and identifying with him by faith, but only do that once as a believer. Lastly, must a person be baptized in order to be saved? The short answer to that is no. The longer answer to that is that we are saved by grace through faith and not baptism. The Bible teaches we're saved by grace because of what Christ has done for us. We don't perform good works to be saved, including being baptized. Okay, So baptism does not save anyone. And the Bible even shows an example of someone who believed in Jesus Christ. He had a deathbed conversion and, uh, and Jesus said he would be in heaven with him. And that's the thief on the cross. Had a deathbed conversion. He was not um, required to be baptized. Now, having said that, though baptism is not required for salvation, it's never presented in the Bible as an optional sort of extra, like it's, it's kind of a meaningless add-on for those who buy into that sort of thing. That, that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus anticipates that the people will hear the gospel. When he gives the Great Commission, he includes baptism. Preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them. It's a big day. On the birth of the church, when Peter's announcing Jesus is Lord and calling people to follow him, they baptize everyone. So while it's not required for salvation, it's not a small deal. It's a significant blessing and a huge privilege. The Bible assumes it of believers. So in Romans 6, when Paul says, don't you know, Paul writes to the church at Rome, he says, hey, all you guys, you're believers in Jesus Christ, don't you know back when you were baptized that that meant you were identifying with Christ? You were buried into his death. You were raised with him in life. Now you walk in newness of life. Don't you know what your baptism means? He, it's a given for him. He doesn't say, hey, Roman Christians. Now, so, I know some of you are baptized, some of you aren't. Some of you are you know, not on that same page or whatever. So, you know, freedom over there. But for those of you who are baptized, this is what it meant. He just assumes everybody's been baptized. Um, and maybe if they hadn't, they did after that when they heard that. So baptism is a great, great privilege. 
If you're here and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, then you can kind of put aside everything I've just said because the starting place for you is not getting baptized. The starting place for you is turning to Jesus Christ and believing in him as your Savior. Uh, The Bible teaches that God is holy and we are all sinful by nature and we've resisted God because of our sin and we cannot make ourselves right with him. And so God sent Jesus Christ who's fully God and fully man and he lived a perfect life and then he died on a cross in our place as our substitute. And the Bible says that God put our sins on Jesus Christ and God the Father poured out His judgment, His holy anger against our sins upon Jesus Christ. And God took our punishment. Jesus, God the Father, poured out the judgment. God the Son received the judgment for us as a substitute. And so if we believe in Him, if we turn from our sin and say, I look to Jesus who died for my sin. I want to turn from those sins. I believe in Him as my substitute. I trust in Him as my Savior. And I want to come under His Lordship. I want to believe. I want to follow Him and know Him. Then that's what makes us a Christian. Once that has happened, we have, uh, we'll ultimately have new life inside of us. And baptism represents that that's already happened. So if you're not a Christian... Don't start with baptism. If you want to be baptized, that's great. But start with what baptism symbolizes. That a person goes under the water, they have died to their old way of life by believing in Jesus Christ and that they are raised to walk in newness of life. That Christ gives us new life. If you are a Christian here and you have not been baptized, we just encourage you to do so. We've got a couple in the next couple months. Someone talked to me after the first service about a November baptism, so maybe we'll have one then as well. But we hope to be able to do this more regularly now that we have a building and can do it indoors, not at someone's pool like we've done in the past, but doing the worship service. So we hope that you would be baptized. And, well, what if I'm a brand new believer? Great, great, come talk to us and let's get you baptized. Well, what if I've been a believer for 25 or 30 years and never been baptized, but I think I'd like to now? Great! What will people think? They'll think you're a Christian and they'll celebrate the grace of God in your life. So if you've been saved one day or ten years, it doesn't matter. Get baptized if you're a believer. That's the good news. And if you have been baptized uh, as a Christian, then think back on what that means on a regular basis. We studied that last week. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. So Paul says, think about your baptism and when you do, Consider yourself dead to sin and, re- and, and uh, raised to walk in new life. Dead to sin and alive to Jesus Christ. So we think about what our baptism represents, that before then we became a Christian. We think back on that. And we say, Lord, thank you for your resurrection power. As we sang this morning, I want to come awake. I want to live in the life. I want to live in the light of Jesus Christ. So it's really, really a very, very glorious thing. Thank you for listening. I know this had a lecture feel in some ways, more than like a classroom, more than a sermon like we normally do. But we just felt like we needed to cover all that material. So thanks for your responsiveness. And you'd be praying that God would save many people and that we'd have the privilege of seeing them baptized in this room when we gather for worship. And let's pray that there would be some in the room that uh, would be baptized as well. You can sign up on your way out. And uh, if you have questions about your kids... We'll definitely uh, we'll have a time to address that. Uh, if you have questions about yourself, just come see us. We'd be glad to help you in any way. Let's pray. God, we want to come today and celebrate that you are a saving God, that you give new life, that you forgive sins, that you take sinners and you identify them with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and give new life. So thank you for new life. 
Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for conversion. Thank you for life where there was death and light where there was darkness. We just thank you for this. We pray that you would save more and more people, Lord. Maybe those who are attending that don't know you. May they know you. Those who aren't attending here, but we know, may we reach out to them and see them saved. And we pray, Lord, that there would be folks baptized in our church, recognizing what you've done in their life, and that it would be a marker for them, a time of encouragement, a time of blessing, a time where there's a public confession of you. May you honor that, Lord, we pray. So do a, do a deep work in us and, and through us along these lines. God, we're so grateful and um, thank you that you are the baptizer. You are the Savior. You're the glorious one. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.